The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Yeah, I was going to say, speaking of applicable, um, no, it's, uh, it's interesting when Dan gave me the, some of the study notes, uh, one, one of the people actually says uh, that, that one of the commentaries says, I don't know how you could preach through this. And that was one of the first things I read, and I was like, oh, that's great. Well, I too missed you all. Uh, it's weird, um, especially with it being a holiday Thanksgiving, and uh, the, you know, the pattern of celebrating Thanksgiving with family, and <clears throat> that weekend ending with church, and then not having it. It was, it was, it was, very, it was very odd and awkward, so I'm, I'm glad we can be together. Um, one of the other odd things or awkward things about uh, our Thanksgiving was it was the first time I've ever been okay boomered. Does anyone know what okay boomer is? What's that? Disrespectful. It, it, it is. So, <clears throat> so Bailey Rogers <laughs> is the likely candidate, but it wasn't her. I, <clears throat> I was okay boomered by my daughter, Ellie. And uh, it, was, it was in good jest, but if you haven't heard of what OK Boomer is, it's basically it's this generational thing. So you have Gen Z and millennials, you know, talk, you know having these disagreements with the baby boom generation, and, you know, it's kind of like, oh, well, when I was your age, this is what we did, or, you know, you, you know don't, don't email in that application, you should, you know, hand it in, or, you know, whatever. They give their advice, and the, the younger generation doesn't think it's relevant, and they just go, OK Boomer. That's, that's kind of the thing. So Ellie, okay, boomered me. It was funny. It wasn't uh, meant to be disrespectful. I, I bring this up because as we look at Daniel 11 and we look at these uh, prophecies of Daniel 11, um, either we believe all of it has been fulfilled already or at least I think consensus is that all but maybe the end of it has been fulfilled um, and there's all these details, which I love to get into, but I don't have time to. I'll get, get through, through, through a bunch of it. Um, it, could, it could be easily dismissed. And, we, and I don't want us to okay Boomer Daniel. Uh, it is God's word, uh, and it's very important for us to uh, read all of it. If God included it in his word, it's uh, good for us. It's edifying to us. Um, so let's pray, and I'll get started. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a God who uh, has told in advance the things that are, will uh, be. And uh, in Daniel's case, Lord, um, we understand much of it has to do with uh, the history between his time and the coming of your son Jesus. And much of it had to do with the temple that had yet to be rebuilt in Daniel's day, which would eventually be destroyed. And I pray then that you would open up our hearts and our minds to this, that we might find edification in it, and that we would trust you even more. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start by taking a look at Daniel chapter 10. Um, if you recall, a few weeks ago, uh, Jonathan uh, preached on, on Daniel chapter 10, and you, the context of it was Daniel had been uh, fasting and praying for like three weeks, like he's, he's very concerned about uh, um, the temple. Um, if you recall, he gave the context of it. Uh, Cyrus had already let people go back to, to, uh, back to Israel to rebuild the temple. Things, there's complications. Things have been put on hold. Daniel is an old guy now. Uh, he's in his, his 80s. And, um, and there's just, he's just concerned in his spirit about these things. And then he's getting these visions that are very troubling to him. So the, the, as, as uh, Pastor Jonathan put it, this glory man shows up and starts talking to him and comforting him. And I want to start with 10.18 just to get a little context. And I think on my outline I said 11.1. I meant to say 11.2a. So I'm going to read a little bit further than just 11.1. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, 
Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. So what's about to happen is is that uh, this glory man is going to explain or show uh, Daniel what's going to happen over the next 400 years or so, um, or, or even longer, depending on how we interpret the end of this book. And we get from it already is that um, he's the one that's been fighting against Persia, but against enemies in a spiritual place. He's the one that um, Darius the Mede, who is the one who came in and, and delivered Babylon out of the Babylonians' hands, and says that I'm the one that confirmed and strengthened him, and now I'm going to go out and contend against Persia, and guess what's going to happen? The Greeks are going to come. So this glory man has something very important to do with the actual historical events. He is this glory man, who I believe to be Jesus, uh, pre-incarnate, uh, speaking to him, is now going to show him the, the truth. So one of the questions we have is, why does God give this predictive kind of prophecy? Right? I grew up in a church that uh, we talked about predictive prophecy all the time. In fact, so much so that I probably would have been at, at some point kind of the okay boomer type. Uh, like, oh really? Like, um, is this all we have to talk about? And, um, and, and part of it is the convincing that the end of the age is near. And I just want to let you know that that's true. Ever since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, the end of the age is near. And the church has always believed it. And we should keep believing it. Everything has been fulfilled that is necessary for our salvation. That is, Christ died, he rose again, and ascended to the right hand. All that's left is that he returns for us. Now the details of how that'll happen, I don't know. But that's what we're waiting for. That's the glorious hope that we have, is that Christ is going to return. And it's good to be prepared. But not necessarily prepared by looking into the details and trying to find them all the time. But prepared in the sense of actually following Christ and sharing Christ with others and being confident in him. So why does, why does he do this? First, it's to establish credibility. If God really is who he says he is, if God is really the God of gods, and he is in control of all things, then surely he knows what's going on in the world and what will happen. And so uh, Isaiah 46, 10, God says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's what God does. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, and then it's going to happen. And it's all for my purposes, and I will accomplish my good pleasure. That should about settle it, right? <laughs> so he tells his people what the future is going to hold, and part of it is, is that it confirms his credibility. So we'll see in Daniel chapter 11 all sorts of prophecy, all sorts of things that come to pass, so much so that a lot of liberal scholars would go, well, it must have been written after the fact. Because this is impossible. Well, duh. Yes, it is impossible with, with human beings. But God is not a human. He's God. Second, it helps to give understanding to his people. So they understand what's going on. So there's going to be about 400 years of silence from God. In that there will be no, after Malachi, there will be no prophet in Israel until John the Baptist. So he is in advance telling them what's gonna be happening. So while there's no prophet at the time to tell them what's happening in the moment, they have from Daniel from this, we know what's going to be happening and they can rely on it and trust in his word. So it doesn't mean, just because he's silent, it doesn't mean that God isn't active or in charge of events, he is. And finally, it gives uh, his people hope. 
God's silence doesn't change his faithfulness. Just because they're not hearing a word from a prophet during those 400 years doesn't mean that God's not working on those promises being fulfilled. God has promised to bring blessing to the earth through God's people and that the seed of a woman would crush the head of a serpent and that the Satan-crushing king would rule the earth. So just because they're not hearing things from a prophet, it doesn't mean that he's not faithful to those promises. In fact, he is. And we've already seen who the seed of the woman is. In Advent, we get to remember, right, the coming of the Son, that in the fullness of time, Christ was born of a woman, of Mary, right? And that his death on the cross was the death blow to Satan. And now we're just in the mop-up time until he returns. So he goes on. And now I will show you the truth. So the rest of verse two, and I'm gonna read it through four. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has come, become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. As soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. Though for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So we know that after Cyrus, there's going to be three kings. The third of those is Darius. Darius is the first king, not to be confused with Darius the Mede. This is Darius the Persian. Darius is the one who first kind of got mad at Greece uh, for helping liberate some of his conquered territories in modern-day Turkey, and decided, I'm going to go ahead and, and crush him and sent an army of about 200,000, and they were soundly defeated by the Athenians at the Battle of Marathon. So Darius was a busy guy. His kingdom was huge. His, the Persian Empire was enormous. Busy guy. So just so that he would remember, he had a slave whisper in his ear every day, Remember the Athenians, remember the Athenians, remember. So when he had time, he would, you know, get another army together. Well, Darius ended up dying and didn't have an opportunity to go uh, beat the Athenians. So his son Xerxes, he's that fourth king who's, who's the bigger. He's the one, he mustered an army of around two million. Now, it's not two million soldiers. That has to do with, like, support troops and everything. But we're talking about close to a million men who are armed and ready to go defeat Greek, Greece, and Greece is a bunch of city-states. They're not unified. They're all different. This should be a piece of cake. They go down into Greece. They have to go through this narrow passage called Thermopylae, and you might have heard about the story of the 300. 300 Spartans take on a million, and they hold them back for over a week so the rest of Greece can get prepared. And they soundly, soundly defeated the Persians, and they left with what they had, they, they could do. Anyways, that, that was Xerxes. So what, what this did with the Greece, Greeks then is, is that they started preparing. What if, the, what if Persia does this again? And they started preparing for war. And they made all sorts of uh, ships and, and armor, and they're just there. And then, of course, they couldn't get along with each other. They started fighting each other. So this did a couple things. One is it made Greek, Greece pretty strong and, you know, military ready. Uh, at the same time, it politically weakened them, and they were sick of war. So this young guy named Alexander from Macedonia comes down and, def and defeats Greek armies and unifies the entire peninsula. So all of Greece is now unified under one guy. This is Alexander. He's the, he's the bear. He's the, he's the big horn. Remember the, the, from the previous, there's the two horns. There's the one little horn. There's a really big horn. That was Alexander. And Alexander, um, wherever he went, he, he won. So I'm going to go on a little side story with, with it because it's kind of important. Alexander was headed to Egypt um, in his world-conquering tour. And uh, when he gets to uh, Syria, there's a big city called Tyre. It's just off the coast. And he has to defeat Tyre before all of Syria is his and before he goes to Egypt. And these these. These dirty, rotten people south of him, 
from Jerusalem kept helping out the people in Tyre with food. It's hard to lay a siege on a city when they're getting fed. And it was the, it was the Jews down in Jerusalem. So this really ticked off Alexander the Great. And after he finally defeated Tyre, he heads down to, to, to beat him. The night before that Alexander was supposed to show up around Jerusalem, the high priest had a dream. And in his dream, he and his other priests are supposed to put on their miters that have the name of Yahweh, God, on their, their forehead and put on their ephods, you know, with their stones and go meet him. And in the dream the high priest had is that Alexander the Great was going to ask them to sacrifice on his behalf and that they're supposed to do it. So he tells the dream to his priests. They all get dressed up and they go to meet Alexander, uh, who's just outside of Jerusalem. Alexander's on his horse with all his generals and all his armies, and he sees the people come, the priests coming. Alexander dismounts from his horse and bowed to the ground and asked them if they would sacrifice to the God whose name he didn't know. It turns out the night before Alexander left to conquer the world, he had the exact same dream as the high priest. And in that dream, he was told that if he did that, the God whose name he doesn't know would ensure his victory. And so when he saw him, he recognized the dream and did it. The reason why this is important, folks, is this. Alexander made a deal with his generals, and that is they're gonna leave the Jewish people alone. They went down, conquered Egypt, and they, they went everywhere. And everywhere Alexander went, he forced them to speak. The Greek became the universal language, Koine Greek, which our Bible was written in. God's providence. Um, he also uh, had his generals intermarry so that people would kind of accept them as their rulers. And, and the other thing was to really unify the kingdom, he made every, he, he brought in this religious secretism. He blended the religions. So, so the idea is, you know, if he comes down into Syria and they're worshiping, uh, you know, Baal, uh, they'd say, oh, okay, you're, you're, that's the storm god. Yeah, our storm god's Zeus. It's the same god. So, so um, when you're worshiping Baal, uh, just uh, do these rituals as well to Zeus. It's the same god. Oh, you know, Egypt, you guys worship, I see you worship Ra, the sun god. That's, that's Apollo. So we worship the same god. So why don't you do this? So all through his kingdom, they're, they're trying, the pantheon of the Greek gods are being worshiped under various names. The one exception was Israel. So now the, the rest of the time here is you're going to see um, uh, Egypt, which is the Ptolemaic kingdom, and the Seleucid kingdom, and they're going to be at constant war for a long time. This is where it gets um, <clears throat> either boring or interesting, depending on what you like here. All right, and I'm going to go, I'm going to try to go real fast. Here we go. Verse 5. Then the king of the south, that's Ptolemy I, shall be strong. But one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. So this, this, uh, Seleucus I was one of the, Alexander's general, and he was given the, the Syrian kingdom. But there was, a, there was a general of his in Babylon who kind of uh, took over. And Seleucus I was scared, so he went to the Ptolemy I uh, for shelter. And so he was a young guy, and uh, Ptolemy I allowed that. But then the general from Babylon comes down and in Gaza, which is just north of, uh, of uh, the Sinai Peninsula, Egypt, you know, right there, um, there's a battle and this general loses. So Seleucid I goes and, and uh, takes his kingdom. So here, here's how it says. Um, After some years they shall make an alliance. This is verse six. And the daughter of the king of the south, this is Ptolemy II's daughter, shall come to the king of the north, Seleucid I, and make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and, he, and uh, he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. So what happens is, um, Ptolemy uh, passes his kingdom to his son, uh, and then, uh, you know, he has a kid, and, and Seleucid this first, he's a bit older now. Uh, he's gotten very powerful, and the thought was, I'm going to give my daughter to him in marriage. Everything will be great. The thing is, is that Seleucid the first was already married. His wife had wanted none of that, and so he, she poisoned her 
and her husband. And so they died. And in the same year, he who supported her in those times, that is her father, Ptolemy uh, the second, the, uh, also passed away. Going to verse 7. And a branch from her roots, that's her brother, Ptolemy the third, one shall arise in his place, Ptolemy the seconds, and he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the kingdom of the north. This was the capital in Antioch. And he shall deal with them and he shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So Ptolemy returns, basically went in and took um, from Antioch all the stolen goods that um, the Persians had taken from Egypt and brought them back. And maybe a few other things from Syria, which makes the uh, northern king kind of mad. So he brings these things in and it endures the people of Egypt to him because he brought back the lost treasure. Then the king of the north, being upset with it, he evades southern, uh, uh, into Egypt, uh, but he was turned back very quickly. It was unsuccessful. His sons, that's, this is um, the king of the north's sons, Seleucid III, I'm on verse 10, and Antiochus III, or Antiochus the Great, shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. This fortress is the one in Gaza, just north of Egypt. This event happened in 219 BC. Seleucid III was then murdered, and Antiochus the Great became the king of the north. Then the king of the south, now it's Ptolemy the fourth, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. He shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. So Ptolemy had gone off and had this great multitude and wiped out a bunch of people, but he, he didn't prevail. His victory is very short-lived. For the king of the north, verse 13, the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. So what's gonna happen here is the king of the north is gonna come down, and um, we're gonna see now that the king of the north becomes more and more powerful. The kings of the south become weaker and weaker. In those times, verse 14, in those times, many shall rise against the king of the south. And the violent among your own people, again, speaking to Daniel, your own people, the Jews, shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. So Ptolemy V was weak. Many tried to take over, you know, various rebellions, and even the Jews revolted. So when the kingdoms were divided up, you have the Ptolemies down in Egypt. You have the Seleucids in Syria. In between Egypt and Syria, of course, is Israel, right? Judea, Palestine, whatever you want to call it at this time. And it was part of the Ptolemaic, it was part of the Egyptian kingdom, okay? It was part of the Egyptian kingdom. So the thing is, is that as the king is getting weaker, um, he's needing to prop himself up, so he's raising taxes and things like that. Even the Jews up north <laughs> felt it was, this king was weak enough that they could revolt against him. You gotta love it, taxes. People, are you guys listening? Okay, just, that was a joke, a little joke. I'm preaching to the choir here, it's kind of fun. So they, they rebel against the taxes, and... Um, and they're severely punished by uh, uh, Ptolemy's general. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the force of the south shall not stand, nor even his best troops. For there will be no strength to stand. Verse 16. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. Okay, so... The first person that says they'll do what he wills was Alexander the Great. 
So when we, when we see this, we think, uh-oh, this is, a, this is someone who's, you know, similar to Alexander the Great in the sense of his uh, uh, power or ability. And none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in his, the glorious land, that is in Israel, with destruction in his hand. So Antiochus the Great came and defeated the Egyptian general. And from, from this point on, in, in 198 BC, 198 years before Jesus was born, until the Romans took over in 63 BC, for that period of time, Israel is now not controlled by the Ptolemies in Egypt, they're controlled by the Seleucids from Antiochus the Great. He shall set his face, I'm in verse 17, he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them and he shall give the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. So in essence, he had a plan. Now that he took over this territory from his neighbors to the south, he decided that he would try to make a deal but the deal was kind of treacherous. He gives his daughter to be married to Ptolemy V in order for him to control Egypt through her. There was only one problem. His daughter ended up being loyal to her husband rather than to her father. Good for her. Verse 18, afterwards he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. Now this, this idea of the coastlands, you, you gotta remember we're, Israel's right up against the Mediterranean Sea. The coastlands, what he has, so Antiochus the Great has already taken over this territory from uh, Egypt. Now he's setting his eyes onto the coastlands around the Mediterranean. Let me spread out my empire, make it, make it greater. So, and he, and he did, he captured many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back to the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fail and shall not be found. So Antiochus had initial success in, in expanding his territories, but it, he ran into the Romans. So at this point in time, the Romans are gaining more and more power. They've gone from a little tiny republic uh, that, that kind of began to fill the Italian peninsula, and now they're, they're spreading. They're, they're, they're still a republic, but they're getting pretty close to looking like an empire. And he runs into the, them, and they, they, uh, they whip him uh, pretty bad. So, so he comes back, and when he comes back, um, he, he was forced to pay tribute to the Romans, he was forced to give uh, back those lands that he had taken, and that, uh, not Israel though, but the coastlands. And he was also forced to give hostages to ensure that he will uh, do what he's been uh, promised, and that included his own son. And so he gets back home and thinks, I gotta raise this money so I can get my son back. So he thought, I'll go raid a temple to Zeus. And the people got so mad, this angry mob um, uh, killed him. Good, good on them. Verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. So Antiochus' son, Antiochus' son, Seleucus IV, becomes the king. And so he, they're still in debt to Rome. So he sends a, a tax collector out um, and he goes into Jerusalem uh, to get money, collect money for the tribute to Rome and, and his intent was to plunder the temple. But he has a dream the night before and it scares him and instead of going and plundering the temple in Jerusalem, he poisoned his uh, boss and uh, saluted the fourth dies from poisoning. Verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty had not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. A contemptible person. This is where we're going to spend a little bit of time. 
Antiochus IV, also known as the Epiphany or Epiphanes, he reigned from 175 to 164. He is also the little horn of chapter 8 in Daniel. Remember the one who liked to talk. Uh, he took the name Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means manifest one. Like basically, right, in, in, the, in, church, uh, in the church calendar, if you follow the, the calendar, Advent, Christmas, after Christmas comes Epiphany. And Epiphany has the idea of, of uh, uh, Christ manifesting himself to the world. Right, so the things you celebrate in Epiphany are like the wise men coming to Jesus because uh, Christ was manifest to these Gentiles. Right, so Epiphanes or Antiochus decides he's going to call himself that—that he is the revelation, so to speak, of God or the gods on on planet. He contemptible, all right. But others called him uh, Epimanes, which means madman. So that gives you a little flavor of what he's like. Seleucid IV's son was the rightful heir to the throne, but because he was imprisoned in Rome, Antiochus uh, Epiphanes uh, took the throne, and uh, it, he did this by paying off important people for supporting him, you know, the flatteries and such, um, so he was able to become king even though he wasn't the rightful one. Armies, verse 22, armies shall be utterly swept away before him. And broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall actually, or he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Okay, now just to, it, it kind of gets a little weird because it kind of will talk about something and then kind of go back to the event. Also, we start hearing the term covenant in here. And, and as good Christian folk, we think of the covenant as being between God and man, but we borrow the term covenant because it's also an agreement between nations or between people, okay? So when it's talking about prince of covenant, it's not talking about, you know, uh, the Jews and the, the covenant with, with God. It's, it's referring to uh, alliances. So Ptolemy the four, fifth, uh, sixth, I'm sorry, I, I lose count. Ptolemy, it's easy though, the, the Ptolemies just name their kids, Ptolemy the first, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. The Seleucids are Seleucid one, Seleucid two, Antiochus, Antiochus two, and it kind of goes in weird ways, but the Ptolemies are easier. Ptolemy the sixth. He comes against Antiochus Epiphanes, um, but he was defeated, and so, uh, you know, Antiochus is thinking, all right, I'm going to keep him hostage, and, and now I can control Egypt. Because, you know, that's what you want to do. Control Egypt. <clears throat> but Ptolemy's brother ended up, instead of raising money to send there to release the hostage, his brother just took the throne. Now it's like, uh-oh, what do we do? So, so, what, um, so it doesn't help either of them. Ptolemy VI wants to be back on the throne, and Antiochus wants Ptolemy VI back on the throne so he can... can you know, get tribute from him, and now some upstart comes and just takes the throne. So they make an agreement, this covenant or an alliance together, um, that he's going to get released and help him get his throne back, and so then they can have this great arrangement. But what the Bible is saying here is just that they never had any intention of acting truthfully with one another. Um, in fact, the, it, it, it goes on. It says, 24, without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods, and he shall devise plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. So Epiphanes, Antioch Epiphanes, after he makes this agreement and sets it up, goes and takes all the, all the wealth, plunders Egypt, and takes all his wealth. And this has never been done before. They've, they've kind of always had these agreements, but his fathers have even though they've been at war, they acted at least truthfully, but, but not Epiphanes. He takes all this stuff, and he, and he also uh, uses them to, to give to, uh, to buy loyalty, right? You know, he's a smart guy, contemptible, but smart. Um, but it was only for a time. Epiphanes, uh, so he, he plunders these richest parts of Egypt's territory, and it, and it sounds like he had divided those plunders between soldiers and, and bribing people, um, but those plans against Egypt's strongholds didn't last very long. 
Verse 25. And he, he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. For the plot shall devise a be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. As for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. So this is kind of going back and saying, okay, one, Ante, uh, uh, Ptolemy VI got in trouble because he listened to his advisors and he got bad advice. And this is how he went to war against Epiphanes and lost in the first place. And then you have the two of them eating together. You got to picture them dining together, plotting out this deceitful thing. But neither one of them had intents in, 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 in carrying it out. So they spoke lies at the same table, but to no avail. For their end it is uh, yet to be. Verse 28. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. Okay? So now, we're, now you, have this, this, um, um, you, you have this added word, holy. Right? So there's the covenant he was making with the Egypts. Now he's talking about a holy covenant. And so now we're dealing with Israel. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. So Antiochus Epiphanes is going back up to Syria and as he went through, Assyria, through uh, uh, Israel up to, to Syria, he sees that there are, is an insurrection that has uh, been going on. So he deals ruthlessly with them. Uh, according to uh, many of the documents, he, just, he killed at least 80,000 men, women, and children on his way back up home. And then he plundered the temple. All this isn't good. Verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the, into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before for ships of Kittim. Now, Kittim is a, the ancient name for Cyprus. And Cyprus was part of the Roman territory. So this is the ships from Rome shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. In other words, he's going to head down back to Egypt because he wants to, he's, he's not happy with the king of the south. But the king of the south, he learns from his mistakes. <clears throat> hey, Rome, you want to help me out here? And they were glad to help. Um, this, this never works out well, by the way. You, you make agreements with Rome, it, it doesn't, doesn't work well. So the ships of Kitten come against him and he shall be afraid uh, and turn it back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. And he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they will set up the abomination that makes desolate. And he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Amen. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So what you have is, is that after the defeat of Rome, he turns back to his own land, and you have this whole section of his territory that's not like the rest. Remember from Alexander's time, the Jews have just simply lived, they've had their existence, they've had their temple, they've had, right, they pay tribute to the, to the uh, uh, to the Ptolemies, they, they dealt with them pretty well. But now they're uh, with the Seleucids and Antiochus Epiphanes is, is kind of coming off of the defeat, is pretty upset. And he finally decides, I'm going to make them Greeks. No more am I going to put up with this stuff. They're going to worship the gods I've told them. And he goes into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and erects uh, an idol to Zeus. And they, have, they sacrifice a pig on the altar. And it puts an end to the daily sacrifices. 
And this is where, uh, you know, those who knew their God. If you ever have the chance to read the books of, so um, this is the Maccabean War. Um, the, the books of Maccabees are in what's called the Apocrypha. So just a little story about the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are books that were written after Malachi and before the New Testament. It's kind of this inter, intertestamental time. The church has never, up until the Council of Trent, thought that it was inspired by God. They've always looked at them as being um, uh, decent things to read, just like I might say, hey, read this Tim Keller book. It's pretty good. But Tim Keller doesn't have authority. Tim Keller isn't, uh, it's not God's word, right? And if I say, hey, you should read the Maccabees, I'm not saying, look at this as God's word. It's not God's word. The, the problem is, is that the, the Apocrypha has stuff in it that could um, be interpreted in ways that could uh, change doctrine. What happened is, is when the Vulgate was translated, the, the, the Greek Bible was translated into Latin. The guy who did this was Jerome. And Jerome not only translated the Old Testament and the New Testament, he also translated the Apocrypha into Latin. And rather than having them it separate from the book, they just, he just thought, oh, I'll put them right here. So now you have the Old Testament, you have the Apocrypha, and then you have the New Testament. And for years that just went on. And all of a sudden, doctrines started getting added. And part of the Protestant Reformation was, we see that some of the errors are coming from the Apocrypha. Let's get it out. So when Martin Luther made the Bible into German, he only did the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, Martin Luther had no problem with Maccabees or the, the Apocrypha as just normal books. But you can't confuse it with Scripture. That's why he took it out, didn't, didn't leave it. Now, when I say take it out, it's, it wasn't supposed to be there to begin with. So it was only until after the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church declared that the Apocrypha was, here we go, they called it a secondary canon, deuterocanonical. In other words, they, recommend, they recognized that the Apocrypha was never had authority in the church. But since, you know, they're the Catholic Church, they can do whatever they want. And they said, so we're going to make it a secondary canon and that it could be read in church and, you know, those kinds of things. Basically, canon means rule. For us, we have, we have these books in our Bible. These are our canon. They're the rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. And those Apocrypha, they could be, you can read them for some, you know, history and some edification, but it's not the Bible. You, you, you can't confuse it. it. But in the Maccabees, it, it describes the war. It talks about how, how it, it happened, how it won. Uh, the celebration of Hanukkah. See, we should have sung Hanukkah songs today. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the celebration of Hanukkah is when the Maccabees finally, with, <clears throat> with a little help from Rome, um, won. And they were able to cleanse the temple. They didn't have enough holy oil to keep the menorah lit um, for, to, to cleanse the temple. But in faith, they did it anyway. And God miraculously kept the menorah lit for, for however many days it is. Eight? I'm not Jewish. What is it? I'm looking at John. I, keep, I assume Jonathan would know, so I'm looking at Jonathan. How long is Hanukkah? Eight days. I was right. Hanukkah, eight days. It lasted for the whole eight days. And, the, and so they decided, hey, let's celebrate the, the rededication of the temple every year. And that's what they've been doing ever since. But that's how Hanukkah came about. Antiochus Epiphanes uh, set himself up to be God and was, and, uh, or I'm sorry, set these false gods up to be God and um, tried to force the Israel to become like them. And it failed miserably. So 36 through 45 is, this is the weird one. 36 through 45, some people have said, think that it's a continuation of talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. Some think it's talking about Rome. Some think it's specific people like Julius Caesar from Rome. And then others think that this is a, a it hasn't happened yet. That it's, oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, or that it hasn't happened yet. In fact, I think, the majority of the commentaries you can find, especially if you're looking online, are going to say that it's events that haven't happened yet. I will tell you plainly, I'm, I believe that these are events that happened in Rome, that it's referring to Rome. And, and you could disagree with me. You're wrong, but you could just, I'm just kidding. You could disagree with me. It's fine. I don't, it doesn't matter to me in that regard. Uh, and I have lots of reasons why I think it's Rome that I'm not going to go into here. But if you want to ever talk, have a conversation, I'd love to have that conversation with you. 
Let me go on. 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished and what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his father or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God for he shall magnify himself Above all, he shall honor the God of the fortress instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor, and he shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. The reason why we... uh, most don't think this is a continuation with Antiochus Epiphanes is because this doesn't seem to describe Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes' goal seemed to be to force the Jews into worshiping the gods of his father, right? He set up an altar to Zeus, right? He didn't, he, he didn't claim, even though he said he's the, you know, Epiphanes, this manifestation of God, he didn't claim like, like I am God, you worship me, right? He was, he was intent on honoring his father's God. At the other end of it, I, I think it might be Rome, and partly because of the, uh, when it says we're worshiping the God of the fortress, R- Rome's primary God, uh, at least in their, their vision of who they were as Romans, is their descendants of Mars. Mars is the God of war, or the God of fortresses, you might say. But this is, this is their, their main thing. And, and you know, Nero Caesar, who, who is the type of the Antichrist, um, he's the one that sent people uh, initially to go war against the Jews. He ended up dying, and the guy he sent, gen- general, had to ke- come back to Rome to be the emperor. And the general who, was, uh, sent, who finished up the job was a guy named Titus. And, um, and, and when the emperor died, Titus became the new Caesar. But when Titus defeated the uh, Jews in 70 A.D., um, before he destroyed the temple utterly, he sat down in the Holy of Holies, was proclaimed God, and worshiped as God. And so when Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation, at his day, he's saying that there's one to come. So that you had the one that Antiochus Epiphanes did, but then there was, so to me, it's saying that 40 or I mean, that, that uh, 36 on is talking about a future event from uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and that Jesus was pointing uh, to the Romans. That's, that's how I... Let me, let me, uh, let me uh, finish here. At the, end of the t- at the time of the end, the king shall at- uh, attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like the whirlwind with chariots and horsemen with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overthrow and pass through, and he shall come into the glorious land, that's Israel. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites. And he shall stretch out his hand against many countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasure of the gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the uh, Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction." And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So one of the things that I see here is, is again, Roman, the Roman territories and how much it expanded and how they were intent on doing war. And the palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain is the sense that they set up their authority everywhere. And so in, in Israel, the, the Romans ruled um, for many times. Now, I don't get to do uh, 12 I have a feeling Caleb has a different interpretation, which will be kind of fun for you guys. It'll be fun for me. I'll be in the audience watching, the congregation watching. Here's the thing. What I wanted to to talk briefly about here in my remaining three minutes or whatever I have um, is, is this. The temple was one of the big things that Daniel was concerned about. And what God is revealing to Daniel through these things is that the temple is going to be rebuilt, remember, because the daily sacrifices are assumed, but there's going to be another abomination that's going to happen. And that even further, it's going to be bad. And the, the thing is, is that we have to understand is, is that they didn't quite understand what was coming. 
In the old covenant, the covenant at Sinai, the tabernacle and then the temple became that thing which showed the presence of God with his people. And while the people were in Babylon and Persia and the temple was unbuilt, it was like, has God abandoned us? Their hope was in this temple. But then it got rebuilt. And guess what happened? When Jesus came, what did he do? He judged the temple and predicted its destruction. And part of it had to do with it was the fact that the old was going and the new has come. The new is him and the new covenant. And the dwelling place of God is within us. Christ in you is the hope of glory. It's not a temple made with human hands. When Jesus was, on the, uh, was uh, uh, alive, he, said, he came down to the temple and his disciples said, oh man, look at how beautiful this is. And Jesus said, it's all gonna be gone. Not one stone's gonna be left on another. They asked him about it. When is that gonna happen? And he talks about the abomination of desolation. And in the end, he says this. He says, when this all happens, he says, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he's referring back to Daniel chapter nine. The Son of Man came in clouds with power and glory to the Ancient of Days, and he received all authority, glory, power, and honor, and his kingdom will not end, ever. In other words, Jesus is saying, when you see this temple being destroyed, don't fear, flee to the mountains and save yourselves, but this isn't beyond our control. This is actually the sign that I have authority. He has not left us as orphans. He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but he's given to us the Holy Spirit that lives in us. We are his temple. 1 Peter 2.5 says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, as the temple to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So God, this God of truth, shows us the truth of his future. The truth of his future was this. That old was going to go, and the new was going to come. We're the fulfillment of these prophecies. The temple built by human hands was to be destroyed, but God was going to dwell in his people and for his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your love and for your plans and your purposes. And Lord, it is sometimes difficult to read these passages and kind of understand exactly what's going on. Even amongst us, we might have disagreements on how we interpret the end of this uh, passage. But God, one thing we know for sure, that you are sovereign over all things, that you are true and your word is true, and that we are gathered together as your spiritual house And we lift up to you our thanks and our praise for all that you've done. And this is our spiritual sacrifice. Help us, Lord, to live lives pleasing to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.